this is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan. I want to thank everyone who's subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those who are sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler, wherever. We're still seeing great growth, and so much of that is owed to you. Thank you. This is our second episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. Today's episode, episode 37, is entitled Pivot. I hope you enjoy the show. So, here it is. The year 1036, and Godwin must have been waiting on Edward and Alfred's reply from Normandy to a summons back home to England with bated breath. We're not exactly sure who sent the letter, to be quite honest. Godwin, Emma, or even King Harold Harefoot himself. But when the response from Edward came back as, um, yeah, I'm good, um, good luck, mother, Godwin must have changed his colors again almost instantly because, so one story goes, Harold Harefoot sent another letter to Edward and Alfred under the guise of their mother begging them to return and take the throne. Being sons of Ethelred II and thus a part of the House of Wessex, they had a far larger claim to the throne than did Casticide's son of Canute. Yeah, if this is true, that means that Harold Harefoot medieval catfished his stepmother's two oldest sons. Kind of weird when you think about it, at least according to Emma's commissioned work, the encomium M.I. Regini. And no doubt with a giant eye roll, Edward prepared for his grand return back home. And so did his little bro, Alfred. Godwin could hold out no longer, though. Harold's rule pushed, at least economically and culturally, further past the Thames than was comfortable, and Harold's hold over Mercia and East Anglia did him no favors either. King Harold wasn't exactly unpopular, and that slowly crippled Godwin's case. Either way, like any good friend, Godwin yelled pivot to shift Wessex into the safer camp behind fellows, fellow earls Leofrich and Seward. But Emma must not have heard. This pivot took the form of Godwin's participation in the fallout of Emma's two sons returning. Now, if you ask the scribes around the island, Godwin was the one who yelled pivot on his own. But if you ask the Vita Edwardi Regius, which was commissioned many years later by Godwin's daughter, Godwin was the one being yelled at to pivot. Either way, Godwin pivoted, and the course of English history, in the most subtle way, would pivot in, in an entirely new direction. It's my contention, being the armchair historian I claim to be, that Godwin's next move will not only haunt him for the rest of his life, but it will haunt his children, as well as fundamentally pivot the course of world history for the next thousand years and counting. Now, I understand the hyperbolic nature of that statement, and I understand that history cannot be boiled down to this one call or that one call, just as a soccer game cannot come down to one red card. 
no, England, sorry, it wasn't entirely David Beckham's fault. But this one event has some serious staying power. Godwin, not Beckham. But when Edward and Alfred set sail on separate fleets toward England, Godwin had a choice to make. Left or right? And he chose left, and left led to an estuary near Ely, where young Alfred would soon land. And when Alfred landed with his small contingent of mercenaries, Earl Godwin was waiting. Now Godwin, no doubt, already knew this young man from years earlier when he'd served Alfred's older brother against the Danes. And I cannot imagine, with my 21st century sensibilities, doing to Alfred, having known him as a boy, what he ordered done. Many, many miles down the coast, near Southampton, Edward also made landfall. And sailing back after being driven away by Godwin's local things, who clearly wanted nothing to do with the House of Wessex or the son of Ethelred at the time, you know, Edward must have looked at the northern horizon on his way back to Normandy, wondering how his little brother was faring. Edward's foray had been a colossal failure. But if Alfred could make some inroads in Wessex, maybe even join up with Earl Godwin, a loyal friend of his mother's, as well as his older brother's, Maybe, just maybe, England could be rid, once and for all, of any Dane. Though Alfred had found Earl Godwin, he was now at his mercy instead of at his side. Godwin had his men slaughtered, which was the last thing Alfred saw, before having his eyes scooped from his skull and being left for dead right there on the shoreline. Within hours, the monks from the nearby monastery, those at Ely, had seen and heard the commotion earlier and went to investigate when they could see that knights and soldiers had left. And what they found there no doubt shocked, stunned, sickened them. They found bodies everywhere, and they found young Alfred lying on the shore, blind, no doubt in unimaginable agony. His men strewn about him, each with his own sword wound, lying motionless, lifeless. The monks carefully picked up the young Ethling and carried him back to the monastery where they tended to his wounds, washed him, fed him, made him comfortable. No one knows how long Alfred was really there, but it must have been at least a few days because it's said that the monks had grown quite fond of him. But sadly, young Alfred son of King Ethelred II and Emma of Normandy, died there and was buried with honor and respect. And as for those mercenaries who'd been killed in front of Alfred, I imagine they too were buried with Christian care, but we need to dig a bit deeper to grasp the full impact of this. This wasn't just a condemnation of the house of Alfred the Great. No, this ran deeper. Alfred's men were loans from a newish family member. See, Alfred's sister had recently married Eustace von Gernen, the Count of Boulogne. And as cool as his nickname was, von Gernen translated to the mustache, his ire was anything but cool upon hearing the news not only of his young brother-in-law and his men being slaughtered by the very people, presumably, who called Alfred and Edward to return in the first place. Tuck that one away. Not much is in the records pertaining to Edward's activity immediately after this tragic and failed attempt to return home. 
except word of his increased interest in religious and philosophical matters. He was known during this time to visit abbeys and monasteries around Normandy and even outside of Normandy throughout the 1030s, actually making friends almost wherever he went, learning, praying, and conversing with anyone and everyone interested in talking about theology and philosophy. He built up quite a, a, a respectable reputation as a thinker, Edward did. But after Alfred, Edward seems to have said, screw England and screw Emma. And back in England, after Godwin's blinding and murdering of Alfred, Godwin's man in Canterbury also pivoted and officially accepted Harold Harefoot as king of all England. Funny. Well, that pivot of Godwin sent a ripple. Um, shall we call it a shiver instead? Across the entire North Sea, everyone heard about what he'd done. From England to Norway and King Magnus I, to Sweden and King Anna Jacob, to Normandy and Duke William I, to Boulogne and Count Eustace II, to Flanders and Count Baldwin V, to France and King Henry I, and finally, to Denmark and King Harthacanute. And Harthacanute was, well, hell hath no fury like a 20-year-old frat boy. Now, in some regards, Harthacanute seemed like a fairly upstanding guy. In some regards. I mean, in terms of how he treated his family, specifically. The guy was far worse than just that, but when it came to family, Harthacanute seemed like a cool person to have at your family gatherings or just in your family tree. Until you crossed him, that is. See, he was still half-brothers with Harold Harefoot, and Harold had already crossed him by usurping his crown of England. Now, this Godwin guy had ripped his little half-brother's eyes out of his head and then left him to die unceremoniously in the care of some very generous men of God. He became, shall we say, very eager to wrap up this nonsense with King Magnus I of Norway, who was still claiming the crown of Denmark in the wake of Canute's death. Hartha Canute was 22, 22 years old by 1037. When news reached him, and he had been held up in Denmark sorting out that crisis in Norway for two whole years, no doubt knowing that England was his by right and being unable to actually get there to establish his rule. In the meantime, Hartha Canute had to endure report after report of Harold Harefoot frolicking around his kingdom, getting whatever he wanted, as well as reading each letter from his mother begging him to return. Hartha Canute, he'd had enough. You know those times in the Game of Thrones series when Arya Stark whispers her growing list of people to take revenge upon before she goes to sleep? I just wonder if that's what Hartha Canute was doing, too. His list was certainly growing each day, it seemed. Like, first it was Olaf II in Norway, while Dad was still alive. Then it was Harold Harefoot after Dad died. And now it's Dad's most trusted Jarl, Earl Godwin, and his Archbishop Lackey in Canterbury to add before nodding off for the night. It was finally time. Hartha Canute met with King Magnus near the borderlands between the kingdoms. Magnus was maybe 16 years old at the time, if you can believe it, and he was negotiating the deal of the century here. They agreed to a truce, a gentleman's agreement. 
The deal was this. We end the war on one single condition. Harthaknut is Magnus's heir to Norway. And Magnus is Harthaknut's heir to Denmark. Whoever outlives the other gets the empty crown. Period. Harthaknut then washes his hands of that punk kid Norway and pivots westward toward England. For Harthaknut, in fact, there was no other direction than west at this point. He rustled up a stout contingent of Danish Vikings, some of them the, the famed Joms Vikings, and sailed not initially for England, though. No, though he headed west, there was one place he needed to stop first, someone to see, some things to pick up. But what might Godwin be thinking upon hearing the news of Harthacanute chiseling out a deal with Magnus after all this time? It's the ending he'd been waiting on for two long years. Two years waiting on this kid to just show up already. He just blinded the guy's little brother and turned away his other half-brother who decided, apparently, to take a long sabbatical and bury his head in the Bible. Really, he just turned his back on this guy's beloved mother. If Godwin wasn't chewing his nails yet, he most definitely started. How in the world was he going to survive this one? Now let's fast forward just a couple years here to the year 1040. Harold Harefoot was firmly in control of England. In fact, he was pretty widely accepted as king. Godwin had made himself comfortable within the kingdom, finally, and after the debacle with Alfred Ethling a couple years earlier, well, he must have felt like he'd thrown his whole lot at Harold Harefoot's feet. As for Edward, the only surviving son of King Ethelred II and Emma, well, he was whiling away his time in monasteries and abbeys still, conversing with holy men of any rank he could sit at a table with for five minutes and talk about the meaning of life and and all that. No update, by the way, as to if he found it, but you can't blame the guy for trying after what he's been through. He'd witnessed the deaths of his elder half-brothers, Ethelstan and Edmund. He'd heard about his mother marrying his father's usurper, straight-up Hamlet style, as well as news about the mysterious death of his younger half-brother Edwig, the king of the Churls, after the takeover by Canute. He'd suffered the abandonment of his mother, the death of his little brother recently, who he had spent almost 20 full years in exile with. And, well, really, who can blame him? But then there was Emma. She is still an incredibly dynamic player in the North Sea politics during this time, believe it or not. She was no longer queen, per se, but as we've mentioned, it was either queen or nunnery. Emma was a Norman and Dane by birth. She was simply not created for a life of servitude. She was, by all accounts and assumptions, a fireball. She was creative, clever, influential, ambitious, and she was, after Alfred's death and loss of her ally Godwin, in Flanders, under Count Baldwin V's control. And she received a visit from her son in 1040. No, not Edward. Harthacanute. Harthacanute, remember, just smoothed things over, and he's on his way with a fleet. But he had to stop somewhere first. Harold, Godwin, he'd been slighted one too many times over the previous five years. And blinding death of his little half-brother and the expulsion of his mother from England, his mother the queen since around the year 1000, to the county of Flanders on the mainland, well, yeah, it, it was beyond too much. Harthacanute, like his Viking ancestors, was on a warpath. 
Harthacanu translated to hard knot, as I've said, which described him beautifully, actually. He was hard to figure out. He was, on the one hand, a loyal family patriarch, having never really shown much hostility toward his half-brothers, those born from his mother's first marriage. This might be due to his father's admiration for Edmund Ironsides. Remember, Harthacanut was born in England in the wake of his father's takeover of the island, and he no doubt heard stories of King Edmund Ironsides. This might have been enough to extend his appreciation and familial ob- obligations to Edward and Alfred. No one really knows, though. And he might even have welcomed to some degree Harold Harefoot into his quote-unquote extended family of sorts. Had the son of King Canute's first marriage not usurped the throne he felt completely entitled to. But Hartha Canute hardly pulled any punches, and he even punched far harder than we in hindsight probably would have advised. He didn't seem to be malicious for the sake of being malicious per se, at least as far as I can tell. He was, however a far more brutal ruler than his Anglo-Saxon Danish subjects were probably used to. I mean, it was 20 years since they had King Ethelred, so... Well, Emma must have greeted her Danish son in Flanders with far more appreciation than she could possibly show. For he brought not only that old Danish Viking ambition toward greatness in his knapsack, but he also brought a small armada. Upon arrival... Harthacnut, as king of Denmark, was no doubt notified of the Holy Roman Empire and its growing concerns in the kingdom of Lotharingia, which is a bit of a forgotten kingdom of the medieval era that could have been found along the east-west borders of the kingdom of France and the Holy Roman Empire, centered in modern-day Germany. But Harthacnut, having just settled, settled the waters between Denmark and Norway, couldn't have given a rip about any growing crap storms to the south. Not now. Remember, Hartha Canute was whispering each night before bed, Harold, Leofridge, Seward, Godwin, Elfric. Harold, Leofridge, Seward, Godwin, Elfric. Hartha Canute had a plan. And Hartha Canute, again, as his name implies, was a tough knot to untie. And he continued to wind himself further and further into an impossible knot. Hartha Canute, no sooner than greeted his mother, paid his respects to his gracious host, Count Baldwin V of Flanders, heard news of Lotharingia, and readied his forces, combining them with the forces Emma was able to muster up, and he was bound for England. There was a crown to claim, and a usurper to depose, and a name to uphold. He was Hartha Canute, son of Canute the Great, Emperor of the North Sea Empire. Oh yeah, and there was an empire to unite too. The goal oust Harold Harefoot by summer of 1040, and then combine his two kingdoms of Denmark and England before moving on to, well, we'll never know, but let's not jump that far ahead quite yet. Just as he's loading the last supplies and recruiting just a few more ruffians looking for a quick buck, word arrived in Bruges, most likely during the last few days of March. Harold Harefoot was dead. As of March 17, 1040, just as yet another Danish fleet was prepping for a North Sea crossing out west, Harold died from, as one chronicler put it, quote, divine judgment. Which is a little laughable because that could mean anything. Did an earl get a little spooked with Hartha Canute on a warpath? Did Emma still have people working inside the kingdom she'd spent more than three decades twisting to her liking? 
Or, and we can, can't definitively rule it out either, did God really disapprove of Harold Harefoot in favor of Harthacnut? Really, in the end, it doesn't matter. Either way, Harthacnut's spring break plans just changed, like drastically. That night, he no doubt laid his head down, rolled over on his side, grabbed his stuffy and pulled it close, you know, like right underneath his big beard, and he began to whisper, Leofridge, Seward, Godwin, Elfric. Leofridge, Seward, Godwin, Elfric. Sure, he was all being welcomed back with open arms at this point. Mom, too. But Harthacnut wasn't untied and calmed that easily. He had been wronged, and his ancestral pride was not happy. At all. That despicable brother from another mother might be dead and gone. Maybe even dispatched upon hearing of him making his way to England. Seems a little off on the timing there, doesn't it? But that didn't mean Harthacnut was happy with the way things went. Harthacnut landed in England within two weeks of the news, his fleet and his Danish and Flemish mercenaries sharpening their swords near the shores. Told for the time being, hold tight, stay put, and please, for God's sakes, just refrain from the raping and the pillaging and cold-blooded murder for like one hot second, okay? And what about Godwin? What might he be thinking when news of Harthacnut and Emma returned, having both been abandoned by the ruling elite of the kingdom? When you're at the top, you tend to be the one who's seen most, and Godwin was still at the top of the English hierarchy, even after his initial holdout period against Harold Harefoot. This guy was still a force to be reckoned with, regardless of who you were. Danish fleets be damned. The good news was that Godwin didn't have to choose between two claimants to the throne, as Ian Walker points out in his book, Harold, the Last Anglo-Saxon King. He says, quote, but left him with the problem of excusing his actions in support of Harold, end quote. This most likely wasn't the first meeting between Godwin and Hartha Canute, because Godwin was rising steadily among the nobility while Emma and Canute were still married. So these two power players most certainly must have crossed paths when Hartha Canute was just beginning to twist himself into the complex and physically imposing knot that now met the Earl of Wessex in 1040. Hartha Canute was recorded as simply angry, which, I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about it. They couldn't come up with any other word other than angry to describe the new king of England as he faced down the nobility who so willingly and easily not only cast him aside as their lord, but also who ruthlessly and barbarically dispatched his little bro, Alfred. You can, you can imagine the chroniclers just throwing out words like it's a brainstorming session in the offices of Saturday Night Live, just seeing if anything really stuck, you know? At some point, every writer comes to the moment when he or she just realizes that the simplest word is actually the single most powerful one. Well, Partha Canute was angry, <laughs> except for a few managerial changes, which no doubt happened upon his arrival. Hartha Canute's first move was extremely telling about how angry he really was. There was, beyond claiming the crown and making it well known who was king, one thing that first must be answered to. Alfred. Calling his earls to his side in London before formally receiving their oaths and pledges of loyalty and all that obligatory stuff that he knew there'd be plenty of time for later, Hartha Canute demanded to know who had lost their damn minds and killed his little brother. The room was probably graveyard silent, all thinking through the power plays available to them at the time. 
none wanting to be the first person to speak, none wanting to be the last one to speak either. It might have been one of Godwin's tensest moments in his whole life to this point, desperately trying to avert his eyes from his fellow earls and his new king, the brother of the guy everyone knew he blinded and left for dead near Ely two years prior. Imagine not only running through all of those ideas you ran by yourself out loud in the car to your important business meeting to talk to the boss that cost the company a bit of his bottom line, while simultaneously bouncing around all those possible responses you had to have on deck and ready to come out with when someone did say something requiring a response from you. But as we've learned, if Godwin was anything, Godwin was a survivor. Godwin survived period. And spoiler alert, he survives this harrowing moment in the presence of his angry king, too. But not without, once again, getting his hands pretty dirty. Not exactly like last time, either, where he merely ordered the eye-gouging and murder of an ethling. No, this time it was literal dirt on his hands, among some other undesirable fluids, no doubt, too. Hartha Knut wasn't one to wait on anything, let alone a response to a direct question to his highest nobleman, and especially when he was seeing red, throwing a sudden shout, maybe a fist pound or something. Then to everyone's surprise, a little squeak chirps from the back of the meeting. Elfric, Archbishop of York. I can imagine the internal groan in the deepest recesses of Godwin's stonewall face. Not only was Godwin outed for Alfred's death by that little pillow stain from York, but others piped up no doubt jumping on the opportunity to pile on and pull the attention away from themselves, even if they were innocent in the matter. And before the minute was up, Godwin was joined by Bishop Liffing of Worcester, who curiously happened to be a bit of a rival to Archbishop Elfric, so there's that. There's absolutely zero evidence of Bishop Liffing's complicity in Alfred's death, so I can only imagine his response in the moment. A thousand years out, it's safe to laugh a little, right? But Godwin knew he was hosed. Fine. Godwin and Liffing. An earl and a bishop were now tasked with the unenviable task of dealing with Hartha Canute's next agenda item on the docket. Harold G.D. Harefoot. Harold was dead though, right? What on earth would Hartha Canute need to do with that guy? They were tasked with, get this, heading just outside London, to a small little abbey named Westminster, where Harold Knutson's body rested. Fun fact, by the way, Edward is pretty much always cited as the first English monarch to be buried at Westminster, but it was in fact Harold Harefoot. Well, kind of. See, when Godwin and Liffing arrived at Westminster, they were to, <laughs> with their own hands, dig up Harold's body, right? and then throw it in one of those sewage ditches that larger medieval towns like London used to, you know, remove waste into the surrounding streams and river systems. Oh, um, the corpse was to be beheaded as well. Hartha Canute, though, was certainly appreciative of Elfric's admission, but no one likes a snitch. And even in 11th century England, snitches got what they deserved. Elfric was ordered to join them in their midnight, not-for-college-days-alone escapade, which must have brought even the slightest grin to Godwin's beard. Godwin was a pretty big man, apparently, and I mean, come on. <laughs> he was with a bishop and now an archbishop. There's no way he was doing the bulk of this job. No way. So out they went. 
Harold's body was dug up by Earl Godwin, Bishop Liffing, and Archbishop Elfric, and then unceremoniously, as I said, dumped into London's waste canals. There were few things one can do so publicly that could ruin a person, even today. But Godwin, once again, found a way to recover, a way to pivot with a gift. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't like gifts, right? Even an angry mama's boy like Hartha Knut had to enjoy the occasional present. And Godwin, after wiping the mud and rot off his hands from disposing of the last king he once served, showed up with a nice, shiny, pretty boat for his new king. This wasn't just any old boat, though. Man, this thing was decked out for real. This ship was huge, inlaid with gold trim everywhere, even on the armor of the men who came with the ship. Yeah, Godwin even gave Hartha Knut sailors as part of his obligatory, sorry, I like killed your brother man gift. And this seems to have settled Hartha Knut's ire just enough for Godwin to get his seat back at the cool table at lunch. And Godwin didn't waste any time taking advantage of it either. He was a Hartha Knut man from now on. He's not messing around either. He's serious. Hartha Knut. Done. When Hartha Knut needed something, Godwin would be ready. When Hartha Knut needed anything, Godwin would be ready. Anything. Godwin was the guy. Anything. Savvy? So Bishop Liffing no sooner washed the mud and rot off his hands than that weasel, Archbishop Elfric, had assumed control of Liffing's lands in Worcester, in addition to his own archbishopric in York. This being a prime example of something in the church that's called pluralism, which is simply the practice of holding multiple ecclesiastic offices at one time. A big no-no, apparently. Pluralism, this consolidation of power on the one hand, empowers one clergyman to become very rich and very influential, while on the other hand, consequently, ends up pitting one bishop against the Pope himself. See the problem there? Anyway, Liffing lost his position at Worcester, which made no one in the area very happy. And what's more, Hartha Knut had just enacted one of the most devastating taxes in English history. Hartha Knut, having dealt with, it, with the usurper's body as well as his little bro's murderers, was ready to tackle the next big threat to his reign, the very men he brought with him. You know, the ones who behaved well enough to, you know, not rape and pillage and murder for a few days. They were apparently well-behaved, even earning cookies and milk before bedtime some nights. But they were getting pretty antsy. They were mercenaries, and you don't hire mercenaries to not kill. It just doesn't work like that. And Hartha Knut was too busy playing games with already dead bodies to start killing, which was a problem. Oh, and did I mention that Hartha Knut, a few days after Harold's corpse sat in the drainage ditch, ordered the old king's body, sans the head of course, screw that thing, to be picked back up and thrown into the Thames? Yeah, that was a thing that Hartha Knut did too. By all accounts, this young man was mentally sharp, military, militarily gifted, and physically imposing. Like a real hottie like his dad, apparently. But it's a stretch to call him a charmer. Let's just say that royal corpse desecrator isn't something one wants on their online dating profile. So what's he to do with that huge fleet he had hired to invade England? Well, 
It wasn't his fault that all those mercenaries were getting restless, was it? He was simply doing his duty by right to invade the land he rightfully inherited. And those mercenaries were how he planned to accomplish, man. I mean, it's not his fault there was no war when he arrived. It's not his fault the English nobility chose Canute's other son to be their king. No way. It's their own fault. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. See where this is going? Hartha Canute blamed the English for not providing the environment in which the army he raised to invade weren't able to be used as intended. So he shouldn't have to pay them off. Yep, you heard that right. The English were forced. <laughs> Let's just repeat that. The English were forced to pay off the army their own king raised to attack them with when they didn't give their king the chance to attack them with it. I, that's just stone cold. <laughs> and this caused major issues across England, as you can imagine. No one likes taxes, but taxes to pay off your potential murderers? Well, that's a really tough sell. And when Bishop Liffings Worcester in 1041 refused to pay this terrible Danegeld because, come on, that's what it was by definition, a tax put in place by King Ethelred II to pay off the Danes to not attack, when this Danegeld was implemented just as one of the worst harvests in a decade or more was occurring, Hartha Canute was faced with his first major indication that his rule wouldn't exactly be well received. The people faced with near starvation already, they just couldn't swing it and survive. But if they didn't pay it, those mercenaries would come and take it. The people of Worcester had choices to make, and the people of Worcester chose to riot. And the people of Worcester violently murdered two of Hartha Canute's own Huskarls, that is, two of Hartha Canute's most loyal and trusted household warriors, who came to collect the taxes. And here's a good time to also throw in the idea of governmental checks and balances in the 11th century, in England specifically. During the reigns of Ethelred II, Swain, Edmund, Canute, and Harold Harefoot, England was largely ruled with the direct input, with the required deference to authority, that is, from the leading nobility and the king, along with input coming from the church as well, from bishops and archbishops and other trusted clergy. However, ask yourself if Hartha Canute seems like the type of guy who really gave a rip about what others felt. Hartha Canute instantly implemented an autocracy upon landing in England, and when it came to Worcester, he demanded vengeance. And Godwin just couldn't wait to show his king what a good dog he could be. But when he, Earl Leofrich of Mercia, side note, Worcester was in Mercia, and a couple other thanes arrived with a small contingent in tow, Worcester was curiously empty. Someone had tempted them off. At least that's what we can assume, because all we know is that the people of Worcester and surrounding farms collected supplies and made their way onto an incredibly cramped island in the middle of a nearby river, and they waited for their noblemen to come and massacre them where they stood. Godwin, no doubt, sat on his horse and looked at this pathetic group of peasants, all huddled together on that lily pad of an island, just desperately wanting to live another day. As he thought about what to do, because it would be an epic fail if he couldn't come back and put a smile on his king's face in the first real job he was ordered to carry out for his new liege. 
Well, Godwin, in consultation with Earl Leofrich, of course, as they were his people, ordered their small army to fan out and lay waste to the lands surrounding Worcester, as well as the town itself. Leave nothing behind. And when that was finished, Leofrich and Godwin pulled out and returned to Harthacanut with a full report. But I can't help but feel for Leofrich and Godwin here just a little bit. No, wait, hear me out, hear me out. The relationship, the bond between an earl and his subjects was actually a pretty sacred one. To be clear, I am not praising or uplifting any system that allows such awful conditions in which a wealthy person could ravage, kill, or impoverish uh, his or her own people at will, which theoretically could and did occasionally happen. But in reality, it's, it's far deeper than that. The relationship between peasant and local thane was as sacred as between any other level of society. The peasant had the unenviable, backbreaking, often dismal and violent responsibility of production, commerce, creation. And I sneak in the wealthier peasants who happen to be traders and more successful tradesmen in this group, but I think for the sake of argument, it's allowed here. Nothing was grown and reaped, bought and sold, or built and created that wasn't touched by hundreds, if not thousands, of peasant hands. Every single building and noble family lived in, every meal they ate, every drink they enjoyed, every sword they killed with, every shield and chainmail armor that saved them. Every single aspect of a noble person's life was 100% possible because of the peasantry. And here's the thing. They knew it. Well, the nobility, that is. I mean, how could they not? Which brings us back to Leofrich and Godwin and Worcester and why those people were already hiding out in the middle of a river when their earl and countrymen arrived to murder them for the deaths of those two huscarls, as well as not paying the king's new tax. Godwin. He'd been a wild card this whole time, able to bounce from one opposing side to another without much of a hitch until Harthacnut. Then he was thoroughly humiliated and publicly for Alfred's death, which no doubt stung Godwin quite a bit, and he was still Godwin. No, he was Godwin, the freaking Earl of Wessex. And though he and Leifrich were on opposing ends of the Harold Harefoot situation, and they no doubt had that typical rivalry with each other, Wessex and Mercia tended to have that with each other, they were both still earls. Their mere existences as earls were solely predicated upon the sacred bond a nobleman shared with his subjects. A peasant was to provide, while the nobility was to protect. One without the other simply didn't work. Someone tipped off the people of Worcester, and I'd like to think it was Godwin, but <laughs> there is no grounds in that whatsoever. But I can also see how Earl Leofrich might have also looked upon his rival, as he was brutally punished and brought low so easily by this young, brash king. Was it Earl Leofrich who tipped off his people in Worcester? Could he have done this to give his people a chance, as a way of maybe snubbing a king who seemed to have everyone in his crosshairs? And there is a rumor of a local bishop with direct ties to Earl Leofrich that sometimes gets the credit for tipping them off as well. It's fortunate for the people of Worcester 
But unfortunately, the Earls also had to send a message. Otherwise, the game would most certainly be up. There are psychological studies that show us how often we should let our children win and how often we should let them lose. The winning needs to be quick and attainable, while the losing needs to be decisive. Well, when it comes to power and authority, there might be a shared truth in there somewhere, you know? And, and I'm not saying I condone this. I'm, I'm just, I can't help but think there might be a shared connection. Letting people hold their protests and even their riots from time to time seems not to be punished too swiftly. However, when governmental punishment does occur, it oftentimes is quite harsh and decisive. It's a message, a reminder. Which is why Leofrich ordered the soldiers to torch the crops, the wood, the buildings, slaughter the animals. I mean, it was a pretty complete local harrying, to be sure. But as the soldiers walked and rode away, the people were alive. But life wasn't about to get better for them either, as that winter, already with much lower crop yields, well, many simply died. Reports around Mercia from the time record unbearable suffering, some rumors even of cannibalism, both due to lack of food as well as Harthacanute's suffocating taxation that hindered tens of thousands of people preparing for the winter properly. Inside of two years, Harthacanute managed to defile a former king who, by so many accounts, was fairly accepted and respected prior to his death, which is never a good welcoming gesture for a new king. He managed to alienate every single earl and thane in his watan. He implemented a tax that should have been his own bill to pay, this tax along with a terrible agricultural season leading to the deaths of thousands during the winter of 1041 to 42. And he pretty much brushed aside any council that was accustomed to providing insight to the English crown. But if you can believe it, Hartha Knut wasn't even done yet. I hope you enjoyed today's episode about England's 11th century reign of terror. Please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting hosting service or app. Also, don't be a stranger. You can reach me on Facebook, Twitter, follow on Instagram, Parlor, as well as through email at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. We have a lot in store for the show this year, including some bonus episodes that will fill in any backstory we're unable to tuck in during each episode, which will be found on Patreon. So I highly encourage you to, if you are able and willing, to become a Patreon supporter for as low as just a dollar per month if you wish. My 2021 goal is for this podcast to be 100% ad-free and listener-supported. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time.